Okay, so the message this morning got the title I borrowed a little bit from Jiminy Cricket here. Let your conscience be your guide. Let your conscience, guided by the Spirit, be your guide. And the big idea this morning is that when Scripture makes no demand, we must not pass judgment. When scripture makes no demand, we must not pass judgment. So last week we talked about this. We started in the beginning of Romans chapter 14. And Paul was talking about those that might be weak in faith. And who does Paul think is weak in faith? First is the one who feels a need to keep Jewish traditions, such as not eating certain meats and keeping certain Jewish feast days that Paul said believers are not to stand in judgment over each other on issues such as these. Issues that are really not dictated by what scripture explicitly says, but more the conscience of someone who believes that they ought to do a certain thing or not to do a certain thing. Neither the weak one who feels the need to keep the more rigid lifestyle in regards to these things nor the strong person who feels this great sense of liberty based on their faith in Jesus should be in standing in judgment of each other, or even bickering about it or arguing about it to, you know, to the extent where it interferes with the unity of the church. Paul's concern is not that the weak one will fall into sin, since he declares that all foods are acceptable. Rather, he's concerned with Christians violating their own conscience whether it be because they are falling under peer pressure to do that which they feel they shouldn't have done, or for the one who has the greater sense of freedom, who should not be made to feel bad about their choices to live in that freedom. Remember, this is not freedom to sin. This is freedom to enjoy the liberty that Christ has granted on issues where the Bible does not tell us one way or the other something extremely clear or give a mandate. So two things can be true at the same time. The one who feels that they should do things in a particular way, that is the, the one who thinks they should keep those traditional guidelines, remember that's the one Paul says has the weaker faith, that one should not judge the one who feels a greater sense of liberty. And likewise, the one who feels a greater sense of liberty that's the one Paul considers to be stronger in the faith, should not look down on or judge the one who does not share their comfort, nor should that stronger one try to pressure the weaker one to do that which would violate their conscience. Now, considering all of this, I want to mention two things that, in my experience in the church, in four-plus decades in the church, have been to... The, the applications I have heard the most often. The first and most common application I've heard about this regards drinking alcohol. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times, Christians shouldn't drink because 
And they will cause you and your brother to stumble. That's, that's what I've heard about this passage. And the other thing that I've heard, not quite as often, but almost, is that the females are supposed to dress modestly so they don't cause the male to stumble because he, you know, he might have impure thoughts about her, and this would be basically tantamount to the girl causing the, the guy to stumble. Now, I'm going to maybe get out of the lid here, and I may uh, shake some people up a little bit, but maybe you need to be shook up, but I don't really think that's what Paul's getting at here. I'm not saying that you can't use those uh, guidelines, but I'm saying in this passage, that's really not what Paul is getting at. And I will explain that a little more as we go on. Remember where who Paul is addressing. Remember that context is king. Remember that when we look at scripture, we always have to consider first, what did it mean to the audience of the original writing? And in this case, Paul is addressing a very specific issue in the church. He's addressing Jewish believers who felt they needed to continue to live according to the traditions and the ceremonial laws. And he was also writing to Jewish believers who felt free to be whatever they wanted because their freedom in Christ set them at liberty to enjoy certain foods and also not to be confined to keep all the Jewish festivals and feasts. And when we consider that original issue that Paul is writing about, that should guide us in how we apply it today. In other words, what I'm saying is those two bigger applications that I've heard over and over and over again, drinking and modest dress, it's not that those aren't issues that Christians should think about. But what I'm saying is that if we put ever the actions or the habits of people on a higher level of priority than where our heart is, then we're missing something. And this passage is really about our heart. So I want to read the passage from Romans 13, uh, 14, 13 to 23, and then we'll break it down. This is a continuation again from where we were last week. And now he's going and, and applying it a little further. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed, indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. 
But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So, again, in that first uh, verse 13, I'll, I'll go back there for a moment. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, this is a lot of times where you hear that argument about drinking being made. And I was reading from R.C. Scroll. He wrote about a situation he once found himself in. He had gone to dinner with a group of fellow believers, and as the course of the process always takes place at a, at a restaurant often, is that the waitress brought out a wine list. And before anyone else could answer her about the wine selection, R.C. wrote that this one woman in the group said, we are Christians, we don't drink wine. Now, R.C. Sproul felt that wasn't the right thing, maybe, for that lady to say. He was concerned that the impression that the waitress got was that Christians are defined by the fact that they don't drink. He, he said, I was tempted to say, actually, I'll have a glass of wine just to, you know, he said that, that was kind of an initial reaction he maybe had, but he almost wanted to go to the waitress and say, well, it's not that we're defined by not drinking wine. There's other, we're identified with Christ. And some people apply it that way, but he said it left it alone. The reason people use this stumbling block verse and apply it to drinking is usually not because they're concerned about someone else violating conscience. They usually will say something like this. Well, I don't want to cause anyone else who may have formerly been an alcoholic to revert back to that because they saw me drink. Now, I think that's actually a smart uh, thing to say. It's just not the right application of this particular passage. Because I think we would all agree that even non-Christians would abstain from drinking if they, for example, had a family member who had a struggle and, and tried to beat alcoholism. So this is not necessarily something that defines Christians, since even unbelievers care about not causing, for example, like I said, a family member who's trying to stay sober to be tempted by a drink. Now, it certainly would be possible that the reason we don't drink in front of others or drink at all would be to prevent someone else from stumbling. In fact, uh, that would be a practical reason that a non-Christian as well as a Christian could, could take. But that's not really what Paul is getting at here. He's getting at something even more important. Paul is concerned that someone would be challenged to violate something that was against their own conscience, which is far more dangerous. Now it may seem like I'm splitting hairs here, but again, we have to remember we're to read scripture with the view that it is important that we first understand what it meant to those who were, it was first written to before we try to make application for us. And by the way, while many U.S. Christians would certainly agree with the lady who R.C. Sproul wrote about, that Christians are people who don't drink wine, that would be quite a surprise to Christians throughout the world whose devotion to Christ is just as severe as yours and mine, but who, because of the culture they are in, are quite comfortable with a glass of wine and dinner. In fact, there are places where if you're sitting in the hospitality of someone's home and you refuse that glass, you might be considered rude, and then you could maybe someone else would make an argument that that also could end your feelings. But that's 
effects. That's another point altogether. But I remember reading years ago that there was a man from a U.S. News newspaper, and he was sent to England to interview C.S. Lewis. And uh, C.S. Lewis, as many of you know, was friends with J.R.R. Tolkien. So C.S. Lewis wrote the Narnia and other books. J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. And the two of them had, were part of a club that was called the Inklings. And they would get together to discuss literature in a Christian context. And then where did they meet? They met at a pub with cigars and beer. So anyway, this reporter came back. He was a, writing uh, for, I don't remember if it was for a newspaper or a Christian publication. He went and interviewed C.S. Lewis, and he came back and, and, uh, and was asked what he thought about C.S. Lewis. And he said, you know what? That guy, he, he, he smokes cigars. And, or maybe it was pipes, it might have been pipes. But anyway, he smokes and he drinks. But I do believe he's saved, this guy said. Now, when Paul speaks of a stumbling block here, he's, he isn't speaking of a particular vice as far as you and I might define it. He's speaking very specifically to those Jews, some who felt the freedom to live outside of the old ways, and others who felt that they should keep living in the old ways. And the concern was not that keeping the old ways was sin, because it wasn't. It wasn't a sin for a new Christian believer to celebrate the Passover. It wasn't a sin for them to say, I still don't want to eat bacon. That, that was a conscience issue. The sin that Paul is concerned about is violating one's own conscience on a matter that Scripture does not make a specific comment on but that each person in their own conscience may very well have a different view, even within the body of Christ. And he continues in verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Paul makes very clear here where he stands. Nothing one can eat or drink is unclean in itself. Paul says he's so convinced of that. He knows about the vision that Peter had. Remember we talked about that last week, the, the vision where uh, Jesus basically had shown Peter that all foods were okay to eat, not unclean, which also represented that the gospel was good to save all people as well. Who would believe? And we also saw where Jesus himself declared that all foods were clean. We looked at that last week. So Paul says it right out. In his mind, nothing is unclean. In other words, he would be comfortable assuming the food tasted okay, right? I suppose he would have been not be persuaded to eat rotting meat, but overall he was comfortable that nothing he could eat or drink would be unclean in and of itself. And not only is he persuaded of this, he actually tags on the Lord Jesus' name to this. He says, I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus. He's making kind of like an oath here. He's saying, I, that's how convinced I am. I can say it before Christ and everyone. I believe that everything is clean. A reminder, once again, Paul is talking about food. He's not talking about something that's sinful according to a command of God or according to Scripture. He isn't saying, for example, well, if one Christian thinks he's all doing okay, then that's fine for them. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that where your views uh, are not clarified by Scripture, 
by some specific command, that's a matter of conscience. He's also not saying that whatever your views are on doctrine are fine as long as you're sincere. Because there's a lot of sincere lost people who believe what they believe. Doctrine and theology are important. No, he's saying that in those matters where scripture does not give clear mandate, there we have freedom. So long as we don't violate our own conscience. So that shows that our freedom is different. I'll give you another example. I know Christians who feel very strongly that you should never buy a new car. Because in their mind, it's wasting money because cars depreciate. And I know other Christians, for example, friends who live in more populated areas and they're in heavy traffic every day, they need a reliable car, that feels strongly that they want to have a new car that they can depend on. So which one is sinful? Right? Because certainly scripture does not speak to that specific issue. And even if you could try to apply scripture, scriptural principles to that situation, you'd be hard-pressed to say, the Bible says this on buying cars. So what do we do then in those cases? Well, then we leave each other alone to make those decisions. Right? If, if you feel strongly that buying a new car is bad and a waste of money, fine, buy used cars. If you feel new is the way to go, go ahead. So long as you can afford the car and pay the bills and go right ahead, no one should really care all that much about what their brother or sister in the church is doing that way. But if you feel this is an issue of conscience and you're on the used car side, then I would say don't let your conscience be violated. If you have a salesman that's really slick and, and you believe strongly that buying a new car is a waste of money, then don't let that salesman talk you into doing something that violates your conscience. Do you see where I'm going from? The Bible doesn't speak specifically to many issues like this. But we do need to follow our conscience. Guided by what? God's Holy Spirit. Our devotional life that we can look in the scriptures and allow God to speak to us on many different issues. So Paul clearly feels, as far as he's concerned, that nothing's unclean. But he adds that on, right? It is unclean. If someone thinks it's, if anyone thinks it's unclean, for them it is. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, do not, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Now, in verses 15 and 16, we see two sides of the coin here. In 15, he says, if your fellow believer is grieved, or you could even use the word wounded there, by what you eat, then you're not walking in love. I hate onions, so I, does that mean I can tell you you shouldn't eat any food with onions? Or no? no, because this goes back with both ways, and I'm going to show you that in a moment. Now remember who this is written to, and in the light of Paul, who Paul's written to, I want to use an example from their time in this application, and then see if we can get something. So Paul is writing to Jewish people, right? Some who feel the freedom to eat whatever they want, some who feel they should stick with the, uh, the ceremonial laws or the old traditions. So we know that uh, an Orthodox Jewish person would never eat pork, right? To them, that's an unclean food. But a Jewish person who puts his faith in Christ and understands that they're under a new covenant could eat bacon, right? So let's just 
go with this for a moment. Let's assume that Paul loved baby. Paul says in verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that bacon isn't unclean in itself, but it is unclean to someone who thinks it's unclean. So we can see that if Paul sees that someone is in pain or eating his bacon, he can go without it to not hurt that person. He's not going to insist so much on his right that he has to do it. Otherwise, he wouldn't be walking in love, and that's the other one side of the point. But on the other side of the point, in verse 16, he's, about, he's not about to allow someone else to tell him he can never eat the bacon. Because, just because they disagree on this matter of conscience. Again, let's not judge each other, is what Paul is saying. If you think bacon is fine and I don't, I shouldn't pressure you to change your mind, and you shouldn't try to make me eat the bacon. So just for the record, I'm a pro-bacon person. Paul is saying we should not pressure each other to violate our own conscience. And do you see why that's a much higher priority than whether someone's drinking or something? And I'm not saying that's not an important issue. We'll get there in, 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 in that. But I want to make sure that we understand this is about a heart issue that if in our own conscience we feel like we're violating that, on those issues that scripture doesn't speak specifically, specifically to, then we could be sinning. So we need to follow our conscience in this case. In those many areas where scripture doesn't give a clear mandate, we should be convinced in our own mind and let others be convinced in their own mind. And this is why I don't think that the, we should jump right to drinking, because I've given you two other examples that apply. The car one seems a little silly, but I've actually seen people argue over this. I've seen people very prideful on their position one way or the other. Let's review the bacon one more time, because I like bacon. You know, it feels like lunchtime, doesn't it? Let's review the bacon one more time, and then let's see how that works for drinking as well. So two people in the early church in Rome are both Jews. Let's say that Paul is one of them, the apostle. Well, and we'll call the other one Tony. That's not a very common Jewish name back then, but they're in Rome. Tony, having been raised his whole life as a Jew, feels that although he put his faith in Jesus Christ and, is, and, and Jesus is his Lord and Savior, he's uncomfortable with the freedom he's been given at this point. Paul, on the other hand, he heard about Peter's vision of the sheets. He heard how Jesus declared all foods clean, and he had smelled bacon so often cooking, and it smelled wonderful. He wanted to try it, but uh, he was constrained by the law before, but now he understands he's got this new liberty in Christ, and so he tries the bacon, and he, of course, loves it, because who doesn't love bacon? And now he wants to add it to every meal, and even desserts. Right? People put bacon on desserts these days. But Paul gets to know Tony's and realizes he's not there yet on this freedom spectrum. And so when Paul is around Tony, for Tony's sake and for love, he'll do without his bacon. Paul does not change his own mind about his right to have the bacon or his freedom to have the bacon, but he's constrained by love for Tony to not cause Tony to stumble. He knows that Tony's conscience would be violated if he tried to make Tony eat the bacon and Tony wasn't there yet. And so he doesn't try to convince Tony to change his mind. Instead, he decides to not put anything in the way of Tony. 
It isn't worth derailing Tony's faith by causing him to do that which would violate his conscience. And at the same time, if Tony is aware of Paul's feelings of freedom on the matter, he should not chide Paul and tell him, oh, you're, you're so wrong over there. See, this goes both ways. The, the anti-judgment sentiment that Paul has here goes both ways. You see, there's, there is to be a mutual respect for differing opinions about things where Scripture does not give a mandate. Scripture doesn't say, you must be pagan, but after Jesus declared all foods clean, it allowed it. The same could be said for drinking. Drinking uh, alcohol is never specifically forbidden in Scripture. Drunkenness is. So obviously a Christian who struggles with addiction should clearly stay away. But some Christians fall into this camp where they grew up their whole life in a Christian home where there's a glass of beer and wine sometimes on the table at dinner or a can of beer, and, that's, and they feel that's okay. Others may feel strongly it's forbidden. So what? Each should be convinced in their own mind. It isn't something that should be argued over. It isn't something one should judge another over. Janelle and I have some very dear friends, not anywhere around here, so we don't know them, but they are true and sincere Christians. They've had us so often to their house before they knew us well. When we were first getting to know each other, I never saw a glass of wine or a bottle of beer or anything in the summer. They kept it hidden away. But after they knew us for a long time and they understood where we were in Christ, we came over for a barbecue once and my friend said, do you want a glass of wine or beer? And I said, no, thank you. I don't drink. I'll have a soda. And that was the end of it. I didn't preach to him about his drinking. He didn't convince me that I should. The witness of his life is clear. He's a respected elder in his church. He's raised Christian children who love Jesus. The reason I bring this up is that in Christian love, neither he nor I insisted that the other violate their conscience. And neither did we allow this difference to break our bond of brotherhood. I know for certain, because of how good our friendship is, that if I had ever said to him, I'm uncomfortable when you have a beer in front of me, I know he would have, I would have never seen him again when he called me twice. That's how comfortable I am with that relationship. But I didn't need to do that. Paul said, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Whether bacon or beer, each one should follow their own conscience and leave others alone to follow theirs. And why? Verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In the end, that's what defines us. We're not defined by what we eat or drink. What we wear, whether we buy new or used cars or anything else, that isn't the thing. What is the thing? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Does arguing about new or used cars make for peace or mutual upbuilding? Does arguing about bacon Never heard that argument in scripture. Thank God. Verse 20. For the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Now Paul says that 
Not that someone else stumbles by what the other person eats, but that if if they eat it and it violates their conscience, that is the problem. If Tony is convinced he shouldn't eat bacon, Paul's bacon eating is not Tony's problem. The problem is if Tony then eats bacon to be cool in front of Paul when he doesn't feel he should. Or if Paul were to give him a hard time and say, come on, man. Heard that a lot lately. Come on, man. So 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So again, it's about your own conscience. You are doing good if you are sensitive towards others enough and, and aware of situational, you know, and we call it emotional intelligence, where you're able to even read other people and understand where they're at. And if you're doing, you're doing good if you're sensitive enough towards others that you understand, you know what, around this person, I think I'm going to modify my behavior. Because I love them and want to not operate and thing that might make them stumble. Do you see the difference between the starting point of thinking and the starting point of the heart on this subject? I'm not saying that drinking is not a proper application. I'm just saying that's not the starting point. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, if you're following into peer pressure, doing something that you feel you shouldn't have done, then you're sinning. Even if something is not spelled out in Scripture, if you feel for you, it's not the right thing. We should also note that a point that Paul is not making uh, in this text, although it's sometimes read into it, the weak brother is not someone who has a susceptibility to a particular vice. And Paul does not urge the strong believer to abstain because he's worried that our example may lead to that individual having a life of degradation because they saw us do something. That type of argument is the type that you usually hear with the whole drinking thing. But we're told that we ought to avoid drinking because our example may lead someone else who has a weakness for alcohol to indulge in excess and whatever else that might run into. And that might that is probably a valid concern, especially if the person had been an alcoholic or something, but that's not, again, the crux of what Paul is teaching here. The weak are not those who have a propensity to eat meat or drink wine. The weakness is spiritual. The inability to see that their faith allows them to drink. The potential problem is not that they may indulge to excess, but that they may drink even when their faith is still telling them not to. That's the problem. This is, by the way, from Douglas Moon. I think I might even have this pulled up here and give credit to him. Um, here's what he wrote. The concern may be valid, but that but it is not what Paul is teaching here. The weak are not those who have a propensity to eat meat or drink wine. Their weakness is spiritual, an inability to see that their faith allows them to drink. The potential problem is not that they may indulge to excess, but that they may drink, even when their faith is still telling them not to. See, it's about violating conscience. He continues, in conclusion, we need to say again, the need to limit the expression of our liberty out of love for God and fellow believers is the key principle of this chapter. 
Our culture insists on rights, and it's easy for Christians to bring that attitude into the church. But the spiritual health of the body is far more important than our rights. The freedom God has purchased for us through his son is a precious gift. But it is a freedom to live as God wants, not as we want. Luther put it well in his famous comment on Christian liberty. A Christian man is the most free lord of all, subject to none. A Christian man is the most beautiful servant of all, subject to all. And finally, I just want to mention the, the modest dress thing, because I mentioned it earlier. Now, there are many scriptures that speak about modest dressing. This is not one of them. I don't think you can find anywhere in scripture that the reason for dressing modesty is to keep men from stumbling. You can't find it. Rather, it's about honoring oneself. This is usually particularly aimed at uh, the female, but it also can apply to men as they dress modestly as well. Now, that doesn't mean that girls should not be taught that, hey, the way you dress can affect the men around you. It should be taught. They should understand that and dress accordingly. But maybe instead of telling girls to dress modestly because it's their job to keep boys and men from having sinful thoughts, they should be taught what Scripture says about dressing modestly. That it has to do with honoring God and honoring self. It means having an understanding of your place as a child of God. You can find many verses that speak of modesty, and Scripture does speak of the way a woman is dressed or undressed and how it affects a man. For example, the Bible makes clear what happened to David's thoughts when he saw Bathsheba. But the scripture doesn't teach that Bathsheba sinned by being seen, it was David's sin for acting out on his own sinful thoughts. So let's teach our girls to dress modestly, by all means. But let's not blame them for the fact that men have lustful thoughts. Because let's be honest, there are societies, Blake and I were talking about this morning, that don't respect them, and they force them to be covered from head to toe in headlong. Men in that society still love those men too. Another reason this passage is not a good place to insert modesty probably is precisely because Scripture does give clear instructions regarding my modesty. Remember how this chapter started? And last week I spoke about opinions. Paul's talking about opinions or matters of conscience, that is, Script, things that Scripture does not explicitly address. But Scripture does clearly address the issue of modesty, both for men and women, many, many times. In fact, we did a Google search about finding at least a hundred times the Bible has modesty. Other times, the Bible mentions how prostitutes dress. Well, how would we know, how would they know how prostitutes dress? Well, she must dress differently somehow. So modesty is actually not a matter of opinion. It should not fall in the realm of fortune. Because scripture speaks clearly to modesty. Then you may ask, well, who decides what's modest in today's culture? Some churches say modesty for women is that they all have to wear long dresses. Others believe it means they have to have at least loose-fitting clothes. So what if two Christians disagree on the details of what is modest? Details that scripture doesn't really address. Well, then we can look at the passage here. If a Christian has a different idea of modesty, but understands what scripture says and teaches about modesty, then we can say, like Paul, hey, be convinced in your own mind. However, if the person has no biblical concept of modesty, well, then we have some teaching to do. 
not from here, but from the passages that I just gave about modesty. And if a person truly loves God, they will want to find out what the Bible says about this and other issues about how we should live. And in the end, this passage is not about whether you should have beer or whether a skirt should be above a golden juice. Really, it's not even about meat and drink. It is about how we're to get along as believers. And this is where I'll segue into our communion time. Because all too often in the church, we allow differences of opinions on matters where Scripture does not give a clear mandate to separate us. That's too bad. We have too little appreciation of our differences. We allow the opinions that divide us when Christ unites us. We need to remember in all things that our bond together here is in Christ. The bond is not in whether we think eating or drinking something is right or wrong. Or whether we think we ought to buy a new car or used car. Whether, whatever it could be. Our bond is in Christ, and if our bond is there, it's supposed to be stronger than any disagreement we might have. I'm going to throw in two more examples that hit us especially this week. Masks. And I, I know I've mentioned this before. Can it both be true that masks may help spread, stop, slow down the spread? And could it also be true that someone may have a respiratory issue if they wear a mask? Yes, both things can be true. Both things can be true. You can have a different opinion. Actually, there's medical doctors on both sides of this. And they're a lot smarter than me. The election coming. Does the Bible say vote Republican or vote Democrat? Now, in the past week, I've seen uh, articles from pastors on one side saying, if you're a good Christian, you cannot vote for him. And I've read articles by other pastors who say, if you're a good Christian, you cannot vote for Biden. So which pastor is right or wrong? Well, it's an issue of conscience. You're going to stand before the Lord on how you vote him. I think you should consider all of Scripture, all of theology, and all of what it teaches about the various issues, and try to make the best conclusion that you think is reasonable. But I also don't think it should be any amount of division in any, in any rounds where I disagree with them on those matters, as long as the main things are there. And what is the main thing? Brings us together. Why are we bound together? Because of Christ. And I'm going to close with this passage and then we'll do our communion because um, this is kind of the passage I wanted for communion also. is from Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 14 to 16. The reminder is there for us. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We should also note the point that Paul is not making in this text, and I, I already said that, it's not about particular bodies. It's about the heart. Okay? And so with that, as we consider our communion together, we often talk about 
the time of communion and evaluating ourselves before the Lord, asking Him to reveal the sins that we need to confess and make, make our peace with God through confession, and we should do that as well. But just as much, and maybe even more, communion is about being okay with the body of Christ that is fellow believers. And that's really important. I want you to think about what I just preached on as we consider all the various issues that we can have disagreements on. I use a couple silly ones. I use some that are kind of serious to take them very But the question is, are you going to allow yourself to be at odds with your fellow Christian over a disagreement that scripture is not explicitly forbidden to practice? Are we? Or are we going to decide to follow scripture where it speaks to the best we can with it, and where it doesn't speak, we will decide to at least be He wants us as believers to express love for one another, that our own preferences fall to the side because we're focused on each other. So as we take your 